I teach people all the time to never call them negative emotions, that they're not negative, they're painful, right? So when we're really stressed, that's difficult. When we're full of fear, that's difficult. When we're feeling anxious, that's difficult, but they're not negative. They're not bad. They're painful. And to really look at those emotions as teachers and to not try and push them away or ignore them, but to actually talk about what you're going through, to journal about what you're going through and to have a healthy relationship and and see them as your teachers. Hey, I'm Stan Stalnaker with Hub Culture, and we're back with another episode of the Hub Culture Chronicles, our conversations on everything digital, future, and today, happiness. Joining us is Tia Graham. She is the Chief Happiness Officer and the founder of a company called Arrive at Happy, which sounds good to me, Tia. She's worked with dozens of global companies, such as Goldman Sachs, Hilton, Four Seasons, to help elevate their engagement and drive their bottom line results. She does that by helping leaders understand happiness. And with multiple certifications in neuroscience, positive psychology, leadership coaching, and employee morale, it sounds like she's just the lady that we need to speak to right now, coming out of the pandemic and trying to figure out how we navigate the return to work. So Tia, welcome to the Chronicles. How are you today? I'm great. I'm very happy to be here with you. (laughs) I'm happy to be here with you. Let's talk about happiness. I think we need a little happiness. It's been a long year. We're kind of navigating into like a new transition. And it's felt it feels like a little little dose of happiness would probably do us all some good. Can you tell me how you talk about this subject with the leaders that you work with? Sure, absolutely. So first of all, there are lots of myths and misconceptions around happiness. You know, a big one is that happy people are happy all the time, which, which there is no such thing, right. As feeling, as feeling happy all the time. And another misconception is that there are these external drivers that can increase our happiness, like success or more money or bigger title or new car, et cetera. So that's one thing I do. I I talk about the myths and misconceptions, and then I introduce the research and really it's the the majority of the research has come over uh, the last two decades. And it's a combination of positive psychology, the science of happiness research, as well as the neuroscience research. And I explain and, and inspire people by telling them that, yes, our genetics, our genetic history plays a part. Yes, our life circumstances play a part. Like, for example, if you're living on Kauai or, you know, you're living in Shanghai and, you know, depending what's going on in your life circumstances, of course, that plays a part. But in addition to genetics and our life circumstances, it's also our choices. We make thousands of choices every single day. And there are choices and behaviors that can increase our happiness and well-being while we're working or, or, you know, in our personal lives. And then there are choices that do the exact opposite. So, high level that that's sort of where i start and then we'll go into two different topics and the research but i first off you know my goal is is to let people know you are in the driver's seat you are in control and there's a lot that you can do to increase your happiness and well-being and you can start doing it right now well i think we should start um you know there's that old saying that money doesn't buy you happiness and it sounds like 
what you're saying is that you can actually make yourself happy if you make some correct decisions that orient you toward that. Is, is that kind of the, the point I'm getting there? Yes. So money can actually bring you happiness if you are spending it on other people or if you are using it for your life's purpose to help other people, right? There are ways that money can drive happiness, but many people believe that with more money, they'll, they will be happier and sort of hanging your hat and kind of counting on that is definitely not the path that you want to go. And I'm not saying you don't want to try and be successful and and have a, you know, have a successful life. Absolutely. But that's not the, where you want to focus the majority of this pursuit or this creation of happiness. So the first very important step is to, to make a conscious choice that you want to prioritize your happiness and well-being. You know, and I, I make the parallel of we are going through a global pandemic and everyone is, is thinking about their own physical health, their immune system, staying safe from this virus, right? Taking care of your physical body. And just like taking care of your physical body, you know, you can't do it for a month and then let it go. You know, if you stop exercising, stop eating healthy foods, you don't sleep. Of course, your physical well-being is not going to stay healthy. And happiness is just the same. You have to continuously work at it. You have to continuously make it a priority and also accept that life is also challenging, right? There's going to be times when you are stressed. There's going to be times when you're feeling fearful. There's going to be times when you're sad or anxious or feeling guilty. All of these emotions are part of the human experience too. So why I'm obsessed with the science of happiness is it really talks about the bright side of life, like being in love and joy and excitement and all of that, as well as the challenging side of life. So I hope that answers your question. It does. It actually just raises about a dozen more because I think this is such an interesting topic to dive into. And it's something that we sort of take happiness for granted a little bit. I, I think it's hard if you were to ask somebody, how, do I, how are you happy or how do I be happy? You often will get general platitudes, but I love this idea of you digging into the research and into the science of it. So before we hopefully build a case for how to be happy, could you just talk to us a little bit about the neuroscience of this? Like, what does it even mean to be happy from a chemical standpoint? Yes. So up until around, let's say, you know, 20, 25 years ago, the neuroscientists believe that the brain developed, of course, as a child into adolescence and even into the early twenties. And then your brain essentially was what they thought stopped physically changing, right? They thought, okay, your brain is your brain and this is your adult brain. Mm -hmm. Well, that has completely been blown out of the water. And research shows that your brain can physically change and does physically change up until the month or day that you die. And hopefully we live very long lives right into our nineties. Let's hope. And so your behaviors and your thoughts change your brain. And I'll give a couple examples of ways. So if someone meditates consistently for 10 minutes a day for eight weeks, and there's a lot of research behind this and, you know, different, different meditation research, but your prefrontal cortex, the newest part of your brain physically grows, it changes. And in addition to that physical change, it's proven that you're going to be calmer. You're going to be more resilient, right? Able to deal with life's ups and downs. 
and you're going to be happier. You're going to be more content. So that's one example of, you know, this neuroplasticity. Also exercise. So exercise is if you have consistent movement every week, it's proven to make you happier. But in addition to that, when you're exercising, you're actually birthing new brain cells, which is neurogenesis. And especially if you are exercising and doing something where you need to use your brain. So I give the example, you know, I, I run, I hike, I do yoga, I do all of these exercises to be healthy. I've never been rock climbing. So I'm assuming if I went rock climbing and went to a huge mountain, right. With a, with a coach and went rock climbing, in addition to having this be physical exercise, right. moving your body, my brain is going to be firing like crazy because I'm having to be, it's the cognition to be thinking. So when you're exercising and you're also having to think, right. Not like the elliptical machine where you can kind of turn your brain off then your brain is, it's almost on fire. You're like exploding new brain cells. And of course it makes you healthier and happier. So So, starting like new sports in adulthood sounds like it's really important for not just your body, but for your brain. Yes, absolutely. And same things with in your adulthood. If you, if you learn a new language or you learn a new musical instrument, that's like a double benefit because you learning that's, that's intellectual well-being. and adult learning is a huge driver of happiness. And then if you're learning a new sport, you're getting the benefit of physical well-being, you know, both the psychological and the actual physical. So yes, absolutely. And, you know, there are, there's these different happiness chemicals, right? Whether it's dopamine and the reward behavior, oxytocin, when you are connecting with, with um, other human beings. So it's basically proven that these behaviors that the, the psychologists are saying make us happier match, you know, what's going on with, with the brain chemicals as well. So Tia, how do you bring this knowledge that you have into the workplace? How do you help leaders be happy? Thank you for, for asking that. And the research is unfortunately really sad, especially in the United States where over two thirds of managers in the United States are, are disengaged and, and only, and this is pre-pandemic, only 13% of employees in the United States said that they were really happy while they were working. And so one thing I did is I went to Denmark because the Scandinavians are significantly happier while they're working. And so that's where I got certified as a chief happiness officer to understand how are these Scandinavian companies and how are these leaders, especially treating their employees and creating a happy culture. And so with leaders, I teach them the connection between their happiness and their success as a leader, as well as the business success. So I show the research that happy employees and happy leaders are more productive. They're more creative. They will sell more. The teams are stronger, break down silos, et cetera. So I I make the business case because happiness can be perceived as, oh, well, that's a feel good, kind of nice to have topic. And I'm a sales and marketing executive of this Senate. So right off, I say, yes, it is. And it's going to grow your business. You're going to make more money. So that's the first step. And then I will teach them the science of happiness and bring in neuroscience topics. So doing keynote talks, doing executive retreats, masterclasses, you know, consulting, et cetera. And, and I work with the, the, these leaders to increase their happiness and their well-being. And I give them a huge amount of tools 
and tactics they can implement in their own life while they're working and, and, you know, while they're at home as well. So that's the first step. Then the second step is to teach them, and this is all evidence-based strategies, how to increase the happiness of their employees so that they take care of their customers. There's more customer loyalty. So the customer, the employees are more productive. You have less turnover, et cetera. And so that's sort of, that's phase two is, is really looking at the employees teaching the employees how to be happier and, and how to create this really happy, thriving culture where people, people are well, and they're doing their best work. And then so, the, Tina, the, I know that you have a book coming out that yes. tells everybody all of these wonderful secrets. Uh, it's coming out in January and it's called be a happy leader. Okay. So if it's okay, can we, um, the Chronicles ask you for a little bit of a preview of some of these tips and tricks that you talk about in the book or that you talk about with your clients about the steps for, say, a leader to build a happier team. I suppose it's got to be more than just take them up, taking them on a rock climbing day, although then maybe that helps. Yes, the team building definitely is a part of it. But yeah, absolutely. I can share some. So One very important thing for all leaders to know in creating a really happy, thriving team is the number one motivator for employees is having progress in meaningful work. So there are, again, talk about misconceptions, right? They think, oh, I'll give them a bonus or I'll give them, I see a lot of companies saying, oh, we're giving, you know, everyone gets a Friday off, which is great, right? Oh, we're doing a yoga class. Those are all great. But The biggest motivator for people is progress and meaningful work. So leaders need to continuously communicate the meaning of their work, right? Every company and organization exists for a reason. And generally besides, maybe besides cigarette and oil companies, I don't know, they're trying to make society a better place. So to continuously remind everyone why their work matters as the organization, and then to think about and communicate why each employee's work matters, and then to continuously acknowledge and show people that they are making progress in meaningful work. You really don't need to give people more money. You don't need to give, you know, free this or this. That's the biggest motivator. So that's that's one tip. Well, you know, Tia, that really reflects well with so much of the work that we've seen about just the corporate shift towards purpose. You know, at all levels of the organization, especially among leading companies, we hear over and over and over again now that the thing that matters is purpose. And so purpose for employees, purpose for the entity at large, to know that it's playing a role in the world that's not harmful and is actually productive or or helpful. And this really echoes that all the way down to the individual employee level that the that everybody in the organization needs to feel a sense of purpose for the work that they're doing. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And um, one and other the second thing. Yeah. Well, there's, so it's an eight step methodology. So I'll give you an, another step is it's called be the spark. So it's fascinating when you look at the research, both again, on the psychology, as well as the neuroscience side on how contagious emotions are, And as a leader, you have a responsibility. I mean, I believe it is an honor if you are leading two people or 5,000 people 
you have this responsibility. And so the energy that you bring to work every single day truly matters. And now this is not about being, you know, Pollyanna pot. Like, of course, if there's challenges going on, you need to act accordingly, right? But on a daily basis, and whether it's virtual team, hybrid team, in person, you are responsible for the energy of your team. And there's incredible research in this book called Positive Leadership. And it actually shows that the way that leaders make their team members feel can positively or negatively affect those employees' families. So their spouses, their children, their partners can actually have, again, the positive or negative experience, right? And so if you think about someone that maybe- Oh, that's amazing. I don't think most people think about the, the way that they're acting at work might be impacting that far down the line. Exactly. And if you think about the ripple effect to communities, right? The effect that a, that a toxic or negative leader, disengaged leader can have. So it's really, really important. So that's another step, be the spark. And I, and I give people tools and strategies to really focus on their energy and, and ensure that they are, that they're lifting people up. Can we just dive a little bit deeper, Tia, into this idea of like leadership engagement? You said a couple of times during our conversation about the difference between an engaged and a disengaged leader. And I think that the link to the kind of happiness concept is not as clear there. So why is it so important for a leader to be engaged? And what do you mean by an engaged leader? Like what are the characteristics of that kind of person? Great question. An engaged leader is someone who is passionate about the organization, the work they're doing, and the team, that they feel aligned and connected to the organization and the team as well. That they, going back to what you said earlier, that they feel a sense of purpose and that purpose and moving the business forward motivates them right? It's the intrinsic motivation as opposed to extrinsic motivation, intrinsic motivation. And because they're motivated and and that they feel connected, then that transfers to the team as well. Mm -hmm. An engaged leader is also someone who has authentic, connected relationships with all of their team members. And they know them on a personal basis, not just as this employee that does this type of work, they will know things about their life, about their family, that they will actually have that connected relationship. And truly engaged leaders also create psychological safety among their teams, right? So this is Google's research. It's called Project Aristotle, where these every single person on the team shows up as their authentic self. And they don't, you know, put on sort of a mask or maybe, a, you know, this is my work persona, right? They're, they're actually who they are at work. And an engaged leader also is someone who is excited. And, and yeah, again, I will just kind of emphasize is just sort of passion about being there. And so, so the opposite, you know, disengaged is someone who is going to work, but really is, is going through the motions, right? So they're there, but they're not giving it their all, right? They're they're checking off boxes. They're doing what they're supposed to, to be doing, but they might also 
on their coffee break or even, you know, on weekends also be like, hmm, what other, com- let's see what other companies are, are, are looking for managers, right? There, there could be searching. Like the research shows that half of the employees in the United States are looking for new jobs this year, right? So that just tells yeah. you. About- I mean, hasn't that number gone up? I've heard that that yeah. number has gone up dramatically since the pandemic. Like pe- people are ready to move in ways and numbers that has never before been seen. Right. Yes, exactly. And how this translates, you know, to to happiness is a disengaged leader is not that happy where they are. Right. If if they're if you're thinking, oh, let me see, I'm gonna I'm gonna take this call from the recruiter, or I'm gonna look at at LinkedIn and, and see what else is going on. Maybe I can get a better job and make a little more money. You know, they don't feel that connected to their boss, right? And not not super loyal. And they may or may not be telling people on their team, like, yeah, I'm looking for another job or, you know, I'm, I'm not going to stay here for, for the full year. They may or may not be saying that, but even if they're not saying that your team can feel it. Yeah. Right. Your, your team, everyone is, 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 is everyone has that intuition. And when you as an employee, as a team member feel like, uh, my leader's not really in it. Why are you going to be giving it your all. And, you know, because that's that layer, right? Every layer, supervisor to manager, to director, executive VP, you know, up sort of has this area of, of influence. So Kia, I have a question about what advice you would have for the growing numbers of people who are outside of these more traditional hierarchies. So I, I really get what you're saying about a leader and a leader in an organization who has responsibility for other people. And you can really see how these tips like so if you imagine what a better world we'd live in if your boss just meditated for 10 minutes a day but a lot of people are now working independently um they're working in like kind of asynchronous groups that don't involve the same types of corporate structures that we used to have but they're all team members who perhaps maybe are contractors or they're working independently or you know if you're an uber driver you're not exactly in the same kind of position that you would have been if you were in a, a more traditional company. And just a lot of people these days are effectively freelance. They're, they're doing their own gig, they're graphic designing, or they're a massage therapist, or they've got all sorts of things going. And so when you have to be your own leader and your own team, have you thought about how the stresses that are unique to that kind of role can affect happiness? Yes. And, you know, I'm a solopreneur. I have actually some people that, that do contract work for me. So I fully connect with, with your question and yes, absolutely. So for the individuals, just like you described, right. The first step is, and it's for a leader or for an individual, like you just described is prioritizing and and choosing to focus on your own well-being. And, and there is a acronym that I teach all the time that I learned from Harvard's Dr. Tal Ben-Shahar, which is SPIRE. So the S is your spiritual well-being, which is meaning and purpose. It can be religion. It doesn't have to be, but really meaning and purpose and spirituality, physical well-being, taking care of your physical body, as well as your mental, right? Your psychological well-being. So one example is never, ever, ever watch the news on television, read the news. If you watch the news, it makes you it totally decreases your happiness. The I is intellectual well-being. So for those people is, I would say, to continuously be looking at ways that you can learn and that you can grow, whether that be professionally or personally, right? We were talking about rock climbing or 
learning a new musical instrument, but it could also be, you know, taking an online course. There are so many different resources for learning and growing right now. The R is relational well-being. And for this group of people that you just described, super important, right? Because if you're maybe not working with a close-knit team all the time and you're working more independently, you want to ensure that you have a few really connected relationships, professional relationships, and, and, and then personal friends, family that you are communicating with on a regular basis. Um, the number one driver of happiness is human connection and regular human connection. And so in our technology filled world, where we're always on Slack, text, email, that you know, Zoom, yeah, et cetera, yeah. right? Is, is, is really prioritizing those conversations and connections. And just to give an example, there's a, another business owner that has a different type of business, but her and I do a call every single week. We brainstorm about our business. We talk about our challenges. And just that weekly connecting call really increases my happiness. Of course, it's helping my business grow too, but it's almost like this little micro team, even though we're different companies. So that's relational well-being. And then the E part is emotional well-being. So this is choosing activities and, and um, choosing behaviors that increase those feel good emotions. And there's a great book called positivity by Dr. Barbara Fredrickson that has so many different tools so that you can increase those feel good emotions. And the other side, emotional well-being is having a healthy relationship with the painful emotions. So this Stan really transformed my life. You know, I, I teach people all the time to never call them negative emotions that they're not negative, they're painful, right? So when we're really stressed, that's difficult. When we're full of fear, that's difficult. When we're feeling anxious, that's difficult, but they're not negative. They're not bad. They're painful. And to really look at those emotions as teachers and to not try and push them away or ignore them, but to actually talk about what you're going through, to journal about what you're going through and to have a healthy relationship and, and see them as, as your teachers also, right? What can I, what can I learn from this? So that's, that's where I would start off is look at Spire. And by focusing on any of these areas of your life, you can increase your well-being and, and, and increase your, your success in all areas of your life. Oh, that's so interesting to you because I, I think you're really giving a framework for how to be happy, which is sort of what you say you do, but I'm really seeing the picture here and, and really understanding how this applies into the business world and, and into companies and even down to individual contractors. Now, I know that you're not a dating coach or a relationship expert in the way that we talk about, like, say, family relationships or with your significant other, but it seems to me like all of this is also really applicable to your relationship, say your primary relationship with your girlfriend or boyfriend or your spouse? Are, are there any other areas that you look at around a happy relationship in, in the home that are worth bringing up here before we start to wrap up? Because I just feel like this makes so much sense for the business world, but it really feels like it could actually be really helpful for a relationship too. Yes. Yes, absolutely. So for relationships, there is a wonderful institute with researchers that have been doing work for over 40 years, and it's called the Gottman Institute. And they are the leading researchers on what makes long-term 
thriving, happy relationships, right? People that have been happily together for 50 plus years and they're having, you know, they still have the romance and the fun and all of that. So yes, it absolutely applies, right? Your focus on your own well-being, right? And, and each person in the relationship can lift each other up or of course, pull the other person, pull the other person down. But one thing that stands out is I know that the research behind thriving couples is that they, and it actually is the same kind of similar to when we were talking about companies is this idea of meaning and purpose. So thriving couples may have one thing that they are both really passionate about, right? So it could be, it could be about that they're very, very involved in a political cause. It could be that they're very involved in saving the forests in the, in the area that they live in. It could be that they're both extremely passionate. They get a lot of meaning from raising children, but the key is, is that both people get meaning from a similar activity and they're both actively involved in it. So that's, wow, that's one- so interesting Tia. I don't think that most people approach coupledom with that in mind. That's actually really fascinating. Yeah. So, so that's one. Um, another, which probably isn't as, as surprising is having a healthy way to argue and disagree and fight. There are ways that when you argue, which of course it's inevitable if you're together for years and years, you're going to have arguments, but there's ways that you can argue and it slowly pulls you apart. You might not be noticing it, but it's slowly, slowly pulling you apart. And then there's other ways to, to have a healthy argument where you have active listening and you are not using words such as you, you know, you did this, you're, you're saying using I, right? Like I feel as opposed to being aggressive and accusatory, but you still can be arguing and fighting. So yeah, there's, there's great research. And I would say for everyone listening that wants to learn more is just to go to the Gottman Institute website. And they have a lot of wonderful books and talks too. And I know that we can also go to arrive at happy.com. That's your platform. I know that you have some master classes. Do you have any master classes coming up? And how does the rest of the year look for you with your quest for happiness? Yes. Well, I am excited because I'm actually starting to confirm a lot of in more in-person events, which of course we haven't done for a very, very long time. And I, yeah. even though it's been great to do everything digitally over Zoom and work with companies. I'm very excited to be, to be back with groups and teams and in, in person. And so um, really the rest of the year is focusing on the be a happy leader book and trying to help and support as many leaders as possible. And then company partnerships. Great. Well, be a happy leader out in January and master classes and other information on achieving happiness at work and in the rest of your life. You can find more information at arrive at happy.com. Yes. Thank you. Tia, it's been so good talking with you today. Thank you for this like round the world tour of how to be happy at work. I feel like I've got some things to take away for our team and I'm sure that the rest of our listeners do as well. We look forward to seeing you again uh, at a hub somewhere in the world and maybe we can do a happiness session with you at one of our locations as they start to open up post pandemic for the rest of us. There are more episodes and conversations available online at the Hub Culture Chronicles on Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcast. We look forward to having you online and in person at another hub again soon. Tia, thanks so much. I can't wait to see you face to face. And I think we forgot the most important thing. 
I think hugs are really, really important for happiness. So I look forward to giving you a great big hug the next time I see you. And thanks for this really, really inspiring conversation today. Absolutely. I look forward to seeing you in person again very soon. Thanks, Tia. 